asked Levi this morning when they were warming up on that song if they were just going to go into like a Bob Marley riff after they were done. I just didn't just feel like you were kind of like on the island and just like chilling out. And it made you feel really warm, didn't it, with all the snow out there? So what a great song. Speaking of songs and speaking of words, I always like to look at songs and uh, specifically look at lyrics that we often miss when we sing songs. I think sometimes we just sing words to just be singing words and this week when I saw that they were singing Be Thou My Vision, I've sung that song I can't tell you how many times, but there's a verse uh, in our lyric sheet that we have on our online program that we use for our worship, and I had never seen this verse before, and I, we didn't sing it this morning, and I've never heard it sung. Uh, there are many verses to Be Thou My Vision, but I wanted to read you the words of verse 3 as it's written here on this lyric sheet. It says, Be Thou My Shield and my sword for the fight. Be thou my dignity, be thou my might. Thou my soul shelter, and thou my high tower. Raise thou me heavenward, O power of my power. And I thought, what a great song, uh, alone in itself, be thou my vision. But what great words in that verse to set us up for what we will be talking about um, this morning. And, the, and I just want to ask you a question as we start this morning is, is there anyone here this morning, anyone who is watching at home, uh, who loves a real tough test? Like how many of you when you were in school, test day came and you were like, yes, anybody? Okay, I didn't think so, all right? And if you raised your hand, because Ethan's not even here right now, all right? Because Ethan would be the kid when I asked that question, he's like, oh, I love it, because he just likes to be Ethan. He likes to be difficult. Um, I was going to say, if anybody raised their hand, I know where all the Pinocchios sit now, all right? Because nobody, nobody in here likes to take a test, especially a difficult test test. In fact, when I say the word, and I'm going to say it a lot this morning, when I talk about a test day at school, immediately some of you go into like anxiety mode and like PTSD mode, and you're just like, oh man, I remember test day, and you're probably like sweating now. You're shaking, trying to, you're remembering the days when you were in school when it was test day. Guys, what I'm going to talk about this morning and where we're going to be this morning in our study is far beyond Anything that you have ever experienced, Gary said it this morning, Jesus was tempted in ways that we will never be able to imagine. I understand that in our lives, I understand in my own life, I experience moments where I am tempted in something, but nowhere close to what Jesus experienced this morning. And there is nothing lovely, there is nothing lovable, lovable about this test that Jesus goes through. Here is the good news right from the start this morning, is that it is in this test or in this series of tests that Jesus goes through that we receive the best news of all, the good news of the gospel. And so I want us to jump right in this morning. If you have your Bibles or if you have your devices, whatever you're going to read the Bible on this morning, I encourage you to open it up, whatever it's going to be, the Bible or on your phone, Luke chapter 4. And I just want to read the first 13 verses. We had a head start this morning in our Bible study. We've read parts of this already, but I want to read the whole story, starting at verse 1. Then Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing all that time, and he became very hungry. And a lot of people will say, well, wait, yes, of course though, Ryan, because he's Jesus. He's God. He can go 40 days without food. Well, he was God, 
but he was also what? Human. 100% human. In fact, it's very interesting. There is a process that theologians talk about that when Jesus comes from heaven to earth, in a way what he does is he veils his godness. He does not tap into and he does not use his godness. So although he is 100% God, it's in this moment that he's operating out of his humanity for 40 days in a wilderness territory that we're going to talk about here in the morning, this morning that is treacherous, that is terrifying. Jesus eats nothing and he became very hungry, which I think that phrase right there is probably one of the most understated and funny verses in all of the Bible. 40 days without food, do you think he became hungry? Duh. How many of you can go like barely four minutes without eating and you're like, I need food. I need some more. I mean, like what? I just, I just polished up that bag of Doritos, but now I need me some, some mixed nuts or something. Like 40 days. Guys, 40 days in a desert, sun beating down on you. Nothing. It says, then the devil said to Jesus, if you are the son of God... Tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. But Jesus told him, no. The scriptures say, it is written, people do not live by bread alone. Then the devil took him up, took Jesus up, and revealed all the kingdoms of the world in a moment in time. I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. Actually, they're not, devil. I will give it to all of you if you will just worship me, Jesus. Jesus replies again for the second time. The scriptures say, it is written, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, which by the way, just a little aside, I, I, I really had worked up a lot on this, but I knew it was going to take too long. When it talks to this moment right here, the highest point of the temple, we think often if you were to look at a house or something like the, like the point of the house, that would be the highest point. And so we're looking for some like high point of the temple Actually, it was probably and most likely people believe the southeast corner of the temple. There was on the southeast corner of the temple there at the top of a place called the Royal Stoa or the Royal Palace. Um, I had pictures, but I didn't put those in there. And what they believe and what scholars believe is that they're talking about that point of the temple. And what's significant about that point of the temple, the southeast corner of the temple, is that it, lo it overlooked below it the Kidron Valley. Now, the temple itself was several hundred feet off the ground. Do you know how, how long or how deep it was to the bottom of the Kidron Valley? About 450 feet. So Jesus is jumping several, the, Satan is trying to get Jesus and, and, and calling him, just jump off what would be several hundred feet to the ground, but then another 450 feet down to the bottom of the Kidron Valley because there is no question, and if you make that kind of jump, it would have to be divine intervention to save you. That's what Satan is talking about here. Jump off the temple. If you are the son of God, just, just jump. Scriptures say he will order his angels to protect and guard you, and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. See what, you see what Satan does there, right? It's like, yeah, like Jesus is using some scripture, so guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to use some scripture, and he uses it wrongly. I would encourage you, we did this in Sunday school this morning, to go back every time that Jesus says, it is written, the scriptures say, go back to the point where he's talking about and see what the scriptures actually say. Go back here in verses 10 and 11, and what Satan is trying to quote is Psalm 91, 11, 12. Go back there and see what it really says. And so Jesus in verse 12 responds, the scriptures also say, 
you must not test the Lord your God. In verse 13, when the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. Aren't those really scary words, by the way? Like Jesus, you would think in this moment, it's like, whew, I'll pass these tests. No. What we get here and the idea we get here in verse 13 is that Satan continues to show up. Now, we don't get these moments in Scripture very often, but I believe they showed up many times in Jesus' life and ministry where Satan came to test and to tempt Jesus. And most importantly, one of those times we do get in Scripture is what? Right before he goes to the cross, he's in the garden, and you can tell that there's wrestling and there's tension in him. God, if there's any way for me to not go to this cross, show it to me but I want your will to be done, not my will. I believe that Satan was constantly working on Jesus. This is just one of the moments here. And so what I want to talk about this morning are these temptations, these tests that Jesus goes through and what they reveal, not so much really about our lives, but that what they reveal about Jesus and how we are supposed to fight the battles in our life. Because I don't know about you, you ever feel like you're just fighting battles on like all fronts in your life? Yeah, I do. How do we do that? How do we stand up against that? Now, many of you likely have never heard of the name Carl Brashear. Does anybody recognize the name Carl Brashear? Okay, I've got one head nodding back here. I don't really see any other head nods. He knows where I'm going here, but this is a great story. Carl Brashear. On the surface, there really is nothing that would make Carl Brashear stick out. He is and was just another cadet who enrolled at the U.S. Naval Academy, like many other young men his age in his day. But on another level, Carl Brashear is utterly remarkable. As the U.S. Navy Institute's website documents, I love his title that he earned at the end of his career, Master Chief Boatswain's Mate, Carl Maxey Brashear used a rare combination of grit Determination and persistence to overcome formidable hurdles to become the first black master diver in the U.S. Navy. His race was an obstacle, as were his origin on a sharecropper's farm in rural Kentucky and the modest amount of education he received there. But these were not his greatest challenges. He was held back by an even bigger factor. In 1966, he lost his left leg and it was amputated just below the knee because he was badly injured on a salvage operation. After the amputation, the Navy sought to retire Brashear from active duty, but he refused to submit to the decision. Instead, he secretly returned to diving and he produced evidence that he could still excel despite his injury. And then in 1970, he qualified as a master diver, a difficult feat under any circumstance and something no black man had ever accomplished before. By the time of his retirement, he had achieved the highest possible rank for a Navy enlisted personnel. Guys, so remarkable was the life of Carl Brashear that he had his life and its inspiring achievements captured on the big screen in the movie, if you'll remember, Men of Honor. It was played by Cuba Gooding Jr. Just a fascinating and a really, really great movie. But of all the things that I've said this morning about Carl Brashear and the amazing things that he went through and experienced in his life, all the accolades and achievements in his life, what was truly special about Carl Brashear is something that you wouldn't immediately see or be drawn to. You see the motivation for his life, everything that he staked his life on, everything he achieved in his life comes from a simple wooden box that he was given by his father, and this is shown in the movie Men of Honor, that had a simple acronym on it. Just four letters, A-S-N-F. 
is this box. It, it, it was like, it was a box that you wouldn't even think anything about. But the words and the acronym stood for something very significant in Brashear's life. And it was, a son never forgets. That was given to him by his, his father. You see, the greatest gift Brashear's father gave him was not caught up in accolades. It wasn't in achievements, but in an identity, guys. In knowing who he was, where he came from, what defined him. And in many ways, that's the foundation for the scene that we just read here in Luke chapter 4. Find ourselves smack dab in the middle of this moment where Jesus goes through one of the most difficult moments of his early life and his, his ministry. We have a son, God's one and only son, who finds himself in the most desolate, daunting place that you could possibly imagine, up against one of the greatest adversaries mankind has ever known and he has to find a way to win guys here in luke chapter 4 make no mistake about it. what we read in those 13 verses is a battle there is a battle at play in this story but on a greater level there is a battle going on amongst and with humankind and in this story that we read and that we're going to look at this morning there is a very clear winner in this battle but what is really really fascinating is the weapon that is used to win this battle or this war is a very unusual one. But uh, what, what is, if we read those 13 verses, we've already read that, we're going to look at it. What is really going on in this story here that we read? And I think to fully understand what's going on in chapter 4 and going on in this temptation scenario, we need to go in reverse to the end, well not really the end, but towards the end of chapter 3 and connect what happened there to what's happening here in chapter 4. I want you to look back into chapter 3 and about verse 21, a very powerful, powerful moment in Jesus' life. His baptism. It says, one day the crowds were being baptized, and Jesus himself was baptized. And as he was praying, the heavens opened, and the Holy Spirit in bodily form descended on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven, I want you to listen to this, a voice from heaven said, you are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. And guys, what happens there in this moment in Luke chapter 3 is, like I said, one of the most powerful moments in Jesus' life and ministry. It's his baptism. And it's at the end of that. This is really, what this is in Luke chapter 3 is Jesus' coronation, his inauguration, his, his coming out party if you will, and Jesus hears these words, you are my dearly loved son. And these are not just throwaway words. These meant the world to Jesus. You're my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. Guys, these are the words that establish everything about Jesus' ministry and his life from this point forward. And as with Carl Brashear's, and the obstacles he had to face, and the difficulties he had to endure, the words that Jesus hears that day at his baptism at the Jordan propel him into a life of faithfulness and obedience because, as I said, as Carl Brashears says in his life, a son never forgets. A true son never forgets. Guys, that moment, that day in Luke 3, Jesus gained a clear picture and identity of who he was and what he was called to do. And it was in these words that he gained the greatest weapon at our disposal as Christians. 
the words of God. I, I, I don't want you to be mistaken as you walk away from here today. You're like, I don't really, what, what did we talk about today? This. The most important thing, the most powerful weapon we have at our disposal are the words of God. Now, I, I think as I say that phrase, for some people, it may be very odd to hear the Bible described as a weapon. And, and I'm just going to be frankly honest, there are times that we use the Bible, and there are times throughout history that people have used the Bible on the offensive, and it doesn't win any battles. It doesn't win any allies. In fact, it just simply becomes offensive. We just smack people upside the head with this thing, and, and it's like, that's, that's not helping anything at all. You notice how Jesus uses the word here, don't you? Does it ever seem like Jesus is on the offensive with the word? What is he doing with the word? He seems like he is at all times just in a kind of defensive mode. Not like defensive, like what you think, like, well, I'm, he's not offended by anything. He is just simply defending God's character and God's promises. It's very interesting, as I looked this week, I went back to the actual dictionary def definition of a, a weapon. And, and definition one says that a weapon can be something used to injure, defeat, or destroy. Does that seem really what's going on here in Luke chapter four? An injury, defeat, or destroy? There is a second definition up there that I think is particularly fascinating. A weapon can also be defined as something or a means of contending against another. And it's this second definition that I want to focus on in the time that we have together this morning as we look at this definition of what Jesus goes through in this harassing and hellish experience in the wilderness. I want to show you the tests that he faced and he goes through are, are much the same as the tests that we face. In fact, we talked about it in Sunday school this morning. I believe that what Jesus experiences here on three different levels are the core of the temptations that we face in our life today. And how, this is so important. I, I really, really want you to hear this. Because I think so often we look at Jesus' life and we're just like, I, I can't do that. I don't have what Jesus had. Guys, Everything that was at Jesus' disposal in this moment in Luke chapter 4 in this temptation scenario is also at our disposal as we face the forces of evil with God's mighty word. Now, I want you to notice, we're really going to be looking at Luke 4 here and sticking our noses right in the Bible here at this point. Luke 4 starts out by telling us this, and this is so important, don't just go right over it. Then Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Now, just stop for a moment, right there, right off the bat. I, I've said this a few times in recent weeks, but I'm going to say it again today. The presence of the Holy Spirit cannot be ignored here. We cannot just step right over that in verse 1 and be like, all right, let's get to the good stuff, guys. Do you understand what happens here? The Spirit does many things here between Luke 3 and 4. The Holy Spirit communicates the Father's message of love to the Son in chapter 3. The Holy Spirit empowers the Son for what He's about to face immediately and eventually. And the Holy Spirit leads the Son into a time of testing, which, by the way, 
When you read that line, isn't that really just crazy? You're like, wait a minute, what? Did I read that right? Yeah, you read that right. God himself, through the Spirit, leads the Son into a time of testing in the wilderness. Like, what? wait a minute, Ryan, that, that doesn't make sense. Like, let me help it make sense. Let me think about, let's think about your life. I want you to think about your life that you go through day by day. Do you ever feel like in the middle of your days, you're like, man, why do I feel like I'm fighting such a battle today? Why do I feel like I'm just being tested today? And here is the really inconvenient truth that we don't like to look at or think about. Do you know how and by whom you have been led into that test? God himself. You're like, well, that's, that's really silly. God would do that to me. God would do that to you because he loves you that much. God would send Jesus into the wilderness because he was his dearly loved son. Guys, I, I want to say this right off the bat as it has to do with the Spirit and the Spirit's role in Jesus' life here and the Spirit's role in our life. And I think this is really, really great news. I hope it is to you guys. Guys, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, will not lead you to where He won't uphold you. Can I say that again? I want you to really hear what I'm saying here. I mean this to be the truth, the truth of what's going on here in God's Word. God will not lead you anywhere that He will not uphold you and protect you ultimately. Now, that doesn't mean that you're like just like invincible. I can do anything. I'll... No, that's not what this means. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But the Spirit will not lead you into moments where He will not be there with you in that moment. Strengthen you, empower you in that moment. That's what we're told as we move into verse 2. What does it say there? It says that He, Jesus, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Some translations, it might say in yours, it says into the wilderness where He was tempted by the devil for 40 years days. Now what's really interesting here in verse 2 is the Greek word that is translated tempted here is very significant. It is the Greek word perazzo. And perazzo can carry the meaning of temptation to do evil, but that's not what's going on here in Luke chapter 4. The translation here is less about temptation and it's more about testing. And a special testing at that, one which reveals truth, or better yet, reveals true character. As James Strong's reference work says, it says this about testing. Testing, as it's known biblically, and especially here in Luke chapter 4, will cause its recipient to appear as what they have always been. Guys, you see, testing doesn't make you something or someone different. This moment here in the wilderness in Luke chapter 4 isn't supposed to magically change Jesus into somebody else. Testing only reveals who you really are. A proof or a solidifying of what is already the truth. Jesus doesn't go out in that wilderness and become something different. Jesus goes out in that wilderness to prove who he already is. The Son of God, the chosen and anointed one. What's the truth, guys, that we've already discovered about Jesus? I've said it time and time again, but I'm going to keep saying it. 
You are my dearly loved son. You bring me great joy. Why would that be so very important for Jesus to hear that, to know that, to let that soak into the core of who he is? Because of what he's about to go through in Luke chapter 4. 40 days in a wilderness where he has nothing. Do you think Jesus feels alone in that moment? Do you think he feels forgotten in that moment? Do you think it would have been very easy for Jesus to tap into his divine qualities and say, you know what, I'm going to take care of this situation myself. You think it would be very easy for Jesus to say, God, God, you really, I really am your dearly loved son. But what have we said, guys? A son never forgets. And that's important because Jesus is about to be led into the first of many great tests in his ministry. And do you want to know the secret to preparing for and passing any great test? I'm about ready to tell you, all right? Everybody's like, oh, wait, hold on. Let me get out my pencil, my paper, my pen. Let me jot this down on my phone. You ready? The secret for preparing and passing any great test in your life. And you're like, I wish I would have had this years ago, Ryan. You know what it is? The best way to prepare for a test is to know the material. Done. Ellie, Emma, listen to this one. You want to pass tests in school? Know your stuff. All right, there you go. It's as easy as that, but guess what? It is as difficult as that, isn't it? In the middle of life's biggest test is not the moment that you start preparing. It's like, oh boy, I've got myself in a pickle now. I better start no, too late. Too late. In the middle of life's biggest test are the moments that show how well you have prepared for what is facing you in your life. Guys, Jesus in this moment in Luke chapter 4 is fully prepared. He is the Son. He is Spirit-empowered. He knows and He lives the Word. The Spirit of God and the Word of God always go together. You need them both. J.D. Greer says it this way. I, lo I love how he says this. If you have the Word of God without the Spirit of God, you dry up. If you have the Spirit of God without the Word of God, you burn up. But if you have both the Word of God and the Spirit of God, you grow up. I love how he says that. Guys, guess what? The best way for us to face life's test and temptation is to know the material, know the manual, know the guidebook, to know and apply God's word. Guys, this is our greatest weapon. But I want you to notice how Jesus uses this weapon. It says he is led in or into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted and tested by the great tester. And Jesus ate nothing at all in that time, and he became very hungry. And just so you do not get any romanticized ideas about this place that Jesus goes to, this was not a camping trip Jesus took with his buddies out to the Rockies or out to Yellowstone. Guys, this was brutal rugged terrain. It was both mesmerizing and terrifying. This area, I've got a picture here, it really won't show you much except for where Jesus was. If you see that body of water there, that's the Dead Sea, and just to the, to the southwest of it there is a that whole territory in between there that's very light colored is called 
Jeshimon. Jeshimon, do you know what Jeshimon literally means? It literally means the devastation. You're like, oh, please, sign me up for a trip to the devastation. Yeah, like if I was to put out a, a sign-up sheet, like, hey, guys, we're, guys men, <laughs> we're going to take a trip next spring, and guess where we're going? It's called the devastation. Now, there would be some guys that are just like, I've got an edge to me, and that sounds real fun. Most of the rest of the people, uh, guys and me, I'd be like, nope, no, no. I'm going to the country club. I'm not going to the devastation. Jesus is led into the devastation. It is a trying place. It is difficult to traverse. It is a harsh climate with conditions that are just horrible. It is a bad place to spend 40 days. Guys, most of us couldn't possibly imagine a worse situation than Jeshimon. Guys, most of us hate being alone for long periods of time. You hate not eating. You hate being in the desert. You hate camping out. And for kickers, you have to do all this alone with Satan. It's not a great camping trip. Speaking of, what does verse 3 tells us? It gives us three words. Then the devil. I mean, could there be three more ominous or imposing words than then the devil? You can just hear the the, the, the music start to swell. Da-da. When the devil shows up. Then the devil said, and for the next 40 days, Jesus is tested over and over again. I think we sometimes read this, we're like, oh wow, he was out there for 40 days and he had no food. That's a really tough time. And he had these three little tests to get by. No, every single moment, I believe, was a test for him of a whispering in his ear, of a tug on his heart to do things in a way that he wanted to. He has taken to the limit rapid-fire temptations and tests, and it seems that what we have here in Luke 4 are key moments, some topics of testing that Jesus went through, and quite possibly even testings that he went to as his time came to an end in the wilderness. And what does the great tester say to Jesus right off the bat? If you are the Son of God, guys, The tester has been doing this for centuries. In fact, the tester has been doing this from the beginning of and since the beginning of time. He knows humans, and he knows that humankind has ultimately failed every single test that he has brought up. I mean, what do these words remind you of? If you are the Son of God. Doesn't it sound very much like the words, did God really say guys this has always been satan's go-to tactic i want you to know this every time you hear a, a voice just gnawing at your brain or in your heart satan always puts question marks in your life where god has put periods and exclamation marks always every time you start to well i don't know if God really said that, you know that's a question mark and you know where that's coming from. What did he say? You are my dearly loved son. What does, it, what does it sound like at the very beginning of all things in the garden that God says, you may freely eat of anything in this garden? Guys, what does the beginning of this testing seen remind you of 40 days in the wilderness reminds you of what those who were in bible said this morning don't cheat i already told you what does that remind you of 40 days in the wilderness reminds you of what 
40 years of Israel wandering in their own wilderness, being tested by God and massively failing. If you are the Son of God, Satan says twice, which is very interesting in and of itself, because it's not so much a question as it is an affirmation. As one biblical resource would say in a word study, the Bible says that this translation of this phrase here is better made by saying, in view of the fact that you are the Son of God. And guys, this is a massive, massive thing right here. We often read this, and we read it in a very questioning tone. If you are the Son of God, guess what? Satan knows that Jesus is the Son of God. But he's trying to get him to think about his situation that he's in. He's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Since you're the son of God, Jesus, should you really be going hungry? Why don't you just take a stone and why don't you just turn it to bread? Tell this, tell the stone, tell, I mean, there are all a lot of stones here, Jesus. Just tell them to become bread. This is the first test. He is tempted directly by Satan who tries to get him to doubt God's word and offers him something good to eat. What's that supposed to remind you of? What does it sound very similar to? The garden, doesn't it? Everywhere, guys, everywhere that Israel and Adam sinned and failed, Jesus succeeds. Passing the test where they failed it, obeying where they rebelled. And he does it under much worse conditions, doesn't he? I mean, think about it. Adam was in a perfect garden with all of his needs met. Jesus is in the barren wasteland, hungry and tired, deprived of his needs. Adam was in a plush garden with everything to enjoy. Jesus is in the wilderness with what? Nothing. He literally has nothing Adam had no need to test God to see if God really cared. The proof of it was all around him. Jesus was without the most basic elements for survival, and he had more than enough to doubt God's goodness and his love. And yet Adam falls, and Jesus doesn't. Why? Why does Jesus succeed where everyone else to this point in humankind has failed? And I believe, guys, it's because Jesus has the right weapon. He has the right approach to fighting this battle. If you have your Bible still open, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 6. This is so key in what Paul says and connecting to this story. Ephesians chapter 6 gives us these words about the battle that we fight. Paul says, as he's coming to the end of Ephesians, a final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm. Listen to this, so you'll be able to stand firm against all the strategies and the tactics of the devil. And this is so important here, and we often forget this, guys. We are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but we often do that, don't we? We often use in our life weapons like words and power and authority over people. We're not fighting that way. We are fighting against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. That's what Jesus is going through here in Luke chapter 4. And then Paul continues on and tells us about all of this armor that we are supposed to outfit ourselves with. And the last thing that he comes to and talks about in verse 17 is that we should take the sword of the Spirit, which is what? What's he say? The word of God. That is to be our weapon. 
Guys, we don't fight battles in the world's way and with the world's weapons. The battle we fight is won by knowing the tactics of the adversary that we face. And so I, I want to just quickly walk through these tests to see how Satan chooses to do battle with God's people. He does it with Jesus here, but he does it in your life, and he does it in mine as well. And just so you know, while Satan is very, very crafty and wily, he's not really that creative. He has been using the same song and dance since the garden. And guess what is the sad, sad thing? We keep falling for it every single time. You see, guys, he, he likes to play mind games and what-if games. He doesn't have anything really great to work with. He does that right here with Jesus. If you, or since you are the Son of God, surely the Father doesn't want you to go hungry, right? Why don't you just take one of these stones, turn it in a nice warm loaf of bread? And I believe Satan really played that one up. I think he did it way more than it gets here in Luke 4. Just really played that up. And I believe he says something along the line of, there is, there is no way, Jesus, that God can love you and these things to be happening in your life. And as I say that, you think to yourself, oh my, I've said something like that in my own life. How could God possibly love me when I hurt this much, when I experience this? That's just a voice in your head and in your heart. And it's this first test, guys, that we see a test that often comes our way. And I put it this way in Bible studies this morning. This first test that Jesus has is to replace the the giver with the gift. The gift becomes more important than the one who gave it to us. To be dissatisfied, to be impatient, to be self-willed, or somebody who was in Bible study this morning, please tell me, what do we talk about? It's the temptation for us to do what? To grumble and complain. Grumble and complain at every point of our lives. Guys, is there anything in this moment that Jesus finds himself here in this wilderness? Is there anything sinful with eating a nice loaf of bread after you've been starving for 40 days? Is there anything wrong with that? Would there be anything wrong with that? Not in and of itself, no. But this temptation, which actually is a lead into the next temptation, you see what this is. It's not just to replace the giver with the gift. It's to go around God in pursuit of the will of God, which is really odd, by the way. Like, God, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it your way, I'm going to do it my way. I don't like the way that you're doing things, I don't like the way that you're meeting my needs, so I'm going to do, and I'm going I'm to kind of help you out here, God. And it's really significant, by the way, if you notice in this first temptation, the, the temptation is not to do something blatantly immoral. You see that, right? It's to go after something good that's just not in God's plan yet or at least not in his way or his timing. But this is what Satan does, guys. He does it not just here. He does it in our lives. He will take a very good thing in your life, and he will make it an ultimate thing in your life, something that you think you have to have for your soul to be really alive. And so the way you begin to interact with and see God is primarily, as, as Wade referenced this morning, is what? A genie, right? Just rub that lamp. If I just, I just, I just rub this Bible enough or I just do enough good things that I think God will love me enough, he'll start to give me things. God is, God is not a dispenser of, of good things to meet your needs in your time. And so what does Jesus do in this moment? So important, guys. Essentially, Jesus says this. Um, devil, there is something more important to me than even bread. And that is fellowship with God. 
There's something more sustaining to me than even physical food in my life. God's declaration over me is that I am His dearly loved Son. Physical bread is good, but He says, Satan, my soul finds its completeness in God. There was a band by the name of Augustine lived several hundred years ago. He wrote a book called Confessions, and he says this very simply in Confessions. I love this. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. You want to to know what every longing is in your life, every urge and every desire in your life? It's an urge and a desire longing that's not been fulfilled because we've not found our rest in God. Jesus knew who he was and what God had declared about him. He had an identity. You and I need the same thing in our lives, guys, even more than to have our physical desires met. We need to know who we are. We need to know what God has declared about us in Christ. Guys, we are, if you are in Christ, if you have claimed Christ and placed your faith in Christ, you are a child of God. And you know what the beautiful thing about being a child of God is? Children never get left alone. True children of the Father never get left alone. As Satan continues to woo Jesus and try to trip him up, he employs a very different tactic. Test two. If I can't appeal to his physical fleshly desires, I'll get him at his pride point. What Satan is saying here in the second test is, I will give you the glory of these kingdoms. It's a a ploy to get Jesus to pursue a good thing, a right thing, in the wrong way. It's up here on the screen. What Satan was offering Jesus was a crown without the cross. Oh, Jesus, I'll give all of this to you, and you won't have to go to that nasty, brutal, horrible cross. And guys, here's why temptation, too, is so powerful. Do you understand the kingdoms of the world are exactly what Jesus had come for? It's it's what God had promised to Jesus from the very beginning. Satan is offering to Jesus a chance to have all of that, but through a shortcut. Avoid the pain of the cross. Doesn't this sound so much like our lives? All I want to be is comfortable. I want all the glory, I want all the goodness, but none of the gook. There's no easy way to say this, but that's just not how it works in God's kingdom and in his economy. The testing points, the trying points are necessary for us to to grow into all that God has for us. Guys, this is the lie here in test two that is whispered by Satan even today. You don't, you, you don't have to trust God and his word. You don't, you don't really have to obey. You just need to do whatever will satisfy your curiosities and your urges and your desires, whatever fulfills your personal dreams, your mission. You, you do you. You follow your heart is what Satan really is saying to Jesus here. Guys, I think this is one of the greatest temptations for a follower of Christ. And again, J.D. Greer says it and puts it so well. I want you 
to really hear this. The greatest temptation for any follower of Christ is to walk on a path that is parallel to the will of God, but not in it. I must say this, guys. This is probably one of the scariest things for many of us who showed up here this morning is that we think we're walking in God's path and his ways, but all we're really doing is we're just walking parallel to it. We're not walking in it. You remember what Jesus says, don't you, in Scripture? He's saying, hey, guys, there, there are really two roads in life. And for most of life, these two roads look like they're walking right with each other, next to each other. But in the end, one is very broad, and it leads to destruction. And one is very narrow, and it leads to life. Guys, the whole point of life is loving and obeying God and his word and anything that makes us leave God or depart from him and his will has become a very, very bad thing. And then comes test three. And all, this is all I say about test three. Jump. That's essentially test three. Go, Jesus. Go to that high point. Just jump. I mean, what's really going on here? I think what's going on here is a scenario that we've likely all found ourselves in. And it's this, God, if you love me, God, if you say I am your child, God, prove it. Isn't it really funny, by the way, how one moment of doubt in our life can erase loads of truth? about God and what he has done in our life, who has shown himself to be in our life. Guys, we, we don't need to twist the arm of God for him to prove his love and his care for us because he has proven that by giving his son to die for us. And do you get, do you get, because what happens here at this third test is Satan begins to quote scripture. That is a lot of gutsiness. For Satan to quote God's word to the word himself, Jesus And Christ would overcome Satan by the use of Scripture, the Word. And, and while that's true, there is one thing that we might miss in all of this scenario that we've talked about this morning. Though Christ would use Scripture to defeat Satan, the confidence that he possessed to do so came from the affirmation of his Father's words. Guys, it is not enough for us to just simply know Scripture. We have to really and truly believe God's Word. Believe it to the core of our being. Guys, the third temptation here is so very important. I think it's actually the one that connects with us the best in our lives today. The third temptation is to interpret God through your circumstances rather than through his word, what he has already said, what he has already shown. And guys, it is a really bad interpretation of God's word, and it's an even worse interpretation of his character and promises to interpret our circumstances and say, God, you don't... You're not really showing up here to interpret his word through our circumstances rather than our circumstances through his word. You see the difference, don't you? Between those. It's a world of difference. I think what happens often, guys, when it comes to Luke 4, and this is also found in Matthew chapter 4, is that many people interpret the big point of this passage here as meaning that the way that we overcome Satan is simply to just know more Scripture than he does. I told the Bible study class this morning, by the way, don't be fooled. You actually can never know more Scripture than Satan. 
That's scary, by the way. He knows more verses than you do. He doesn't know how to use them, and he doesn't know how to apply them, but you can't outsmart Satan when it comes to that. But here is where you do have a leg up. You can use the scriptures, and you can live the scriptures in ways that he can't. There is something very specific about the way that Jesus uses the word of God that is God's declaration of how he feels about him. You understand that. This is so important. Satan's first and foremost tactic in your life is to make you doubt God's declaration of you. The main temptation for Satan is to get you to doubt your identity in Christ or how God feels about you. Here's what Satan does. Satan uses what you've done to define who you are, but Jesus uses what he's done and how he has redefined you to transform what you do. Satan wants to base your identity on security on what you do, but it should always be grounded in the truth of what Jesus has already done as it's revealed in God's word. I just, guys, you, you, you need to know this every single moment of every single day. You can absolutely tell whose voice is speaking into your ear based on where they start in your life. Satan always starts with what you did what you have done, and he uses that to tear down your identity. God, through the Holy Spirit, starts with who he's made you in Christ, and he helps you to rebuild from what you have done to become what he has always wanted you to be. It's a, a song, I don't know if you've heard it, uh, it's on the radio right now and has been for some time. Jeremy Camp has a song called When You Speak, and he starts out the song with this, and listen to these words. He says, I find it's always the lie that is loudest. But he says, I know the one with the power is never the one who is shouting. The voice that you hear that's so prominent in your life that's telling you that you, you can't do something, that you aren't something, that's the lie. Always. Satan speaks words that sound very true or maybe true-ish, but Jesus speaks a louder word. He speaks the truth of God's word. Guys, here's what I'm not saying this morning. I'm not saying that if you read enough of this Bible right here and you get it into, you'll never be tempted or tested again. It's actually quite the opposite. Knowing the word primes you for testing in your life, but it does not lessen the impact of temptation and the whispers of the master liar in your life. Guys, knowing the word, living the word, being led by the word helps us to block out all the wrong words in our life. In the wilderness, Christ defeated Satan because he never forgot the words of his father. Even when Satan tries to turn our world upside down and we are tested beyond what we think we can stand up under, just remember, I've said it time and time again, guys, a son or a daughter of the king never forgets who they truly are, what God thinks of them. Guys, there is an enemy in your life whose sole goal is to kill and to steal and to destroy your life. Jesus said, or better yet, Peter says in 1 Peter that he prowls around like a, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Guys, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, as Paul says. Guys, you see this, don't you? If you do not know who you're fighting against, 
you won't know how to fight. And from the very beginning, we've looked at it this morning, Satan's number one tactic has been to separate us, to separate God's people from the Word of God. In the Garden of Eden, he showed up in the exact same way. Did God really say that? Are you sure that God really has your best interests at heart? Guys, his strategy is not just to make you doubt God's word, but Satan's strategy is to make you devalue God's word in your life. And sadly, very, very sadly for some, some people do not know enough of the word of God for Satan to have anything to steal from their life. That is why it's so insanely important and we stress it and we have been this whole month but we do it so often is to love the word to know the word to believe the word so that it does not get stolen out of your life it does not doubt does not creep in your life you do not devalue the word in your life but i think guys to close this morning the true beauty of this temptation scene is that Jesus is not just showing us a good example. We might look at that and be like, well, that's our example right there. If we just do what Jesus did, we just be more like Jesus, that'll just take care of everything. It's not just that. It's not just about an example. Do you really understand what's going on here? What's so powerful about this moment in Luke 4 and really all of Jesus' life is that he became our substitute. For every time that we fail, have failed, will fail in life, Jesus is going to say over and over, for those who are in Christ, I'll pay for that one. In fact, if I said, I want you to choose one word that describes Jesus' work here on earth, that word should be substitution. His primary work in coming to earth is not about morality or about an example to follow, but in being a substitute for our sin who would die in our place. In fact, everything about this scene in Luke 4 and what leads up to it is about Jesus in our place. I came across a very interesting and fascinating story this week, and I want to close with this. Some of you have likely heard of the name Herbie Hancock. Herbie Hancock is a very famous jazz musician. He is a pianist. And he um, was in what was arguably probably one of the greatest jazz quintets with some very well-known names, one of those being Miles Davis. And he tells a story about one time, and I think it was about 1963 or 1964, they were playing a show over in Germany and, and Herbie Hancock was sitting at his piano, and they were just going through their jazz riff. And you know, if you know about jazz, jazz is just kind of free-flowing. Um, they say a lot of it just is kind of mistakes that all kind of come together. But he says at one point he was playing this song, and he legitimately played a massively wrong chord that sounded horrible. And he said he just literally stopped and froze. And he, he said he put his hands up to his face. And he says without even, like, thinking of anything, Miles Davis just shifted into that mistake and played as if it hadn't been a mistake. And he covered over that mistake. And you know what, guys? I think that's so true about the way that Jesus works and wants to work in our life. It's exactly what happened in that scenario with Herbie Hancock and Miles Davis. I believe without even saying it is exactly what the phrase that I said a little bit ago. When Herbie Hancock hit that wrong chord on that piano, Miles Davis simply looked at him and says, I'll cover that one. I've got that one. Jesus says to every person in this room, every person in this world, 
if you would only listen and you would only hear this. I'll pay for that one. Jesus loved us enough to pay for every wrong that we would ever commit. And guys, why that is so important is because, you know what, that would be the point that Satan wants to come into your life and say you are a nothing. You'll never amount to that. You will never be loved by your Father. And we need to know the word and say, you know what? It says in verse 13 there, we read that. It says that Satan left Jesus until an opportune time. In Matthew chapter 4, the very end of that temptation scenario, you know what Jesus says to Satan? Get out of here. Do you realize what you can do in your life? You realize what you can do every time that Satan comes to try to whisper something like, you'll never amount to anything. The Father could never love you. You know what we can do? Get away from me, Satan. I know your lies, and I know the truth, because a son or a daughter never forgets. Would you pray with me this morning? I pray that's true in our life, and it's so, so very difficult in the world that we live in, with the weapons that we see that are used in our world and waged in our world, we, we fight in very odd and different ways than you call us to. And really this morning as we talked about it is, is as simple as just knowing and living into your word. But more importantly than that, and at a deeper level, Lord, it's, it's living into who you have called us to, to be and to become. And first and foremost, above anything and before anything, Lord, we are sons and daughters of the King. Oh, how comforting and how relieving that is. Lord, any time that we find ourselves in this life being put to the test, we hear the whisper in our ears, we feel the twinge in our heart to believe something other than the fact that you truly do love us, You've displayed that by sending your son Jesus to die on a cross for us, Lord. We would just simply say, get away, Satan. You've got no hold here. May we live into that every single day of our lives. And we fight the battles that you give us in the right way, with the right weapons, with the word of God. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.